Welcome to Launchpad, the unique radio show and podcast that celebrates new book releases and the authors that created them. Now, let's take off with your host, Grace Salmon. This is Launchpad. Welcome to episode 24 with Randy Dawn, Linda Smith-Hogan, Katie Sharingford, and Julie Ryan McGew. This is going to be a great episode. So on behalf of Mary Helen Sheriff, the author marketing coach, and myself, Grace Salmon, I'm so glad that you're with us today. This show is being recorded in front of a live audience. So if you are joining us live, feel free to join in in the comments, ask a question, and share your individual responses to each of these great authors. Today, we're going to be talking about from the funny to the fantastical, to historical characters with wives newly imagined, to epic adoption stories and finding out who we are, and to long lost love and what happens 40 years later. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to have Randy Dawn with her book, Tune In Tomorrow, Linda Smith Hogan with our song, Memoir of Love and race, Katie Sharington with Meet Me in Milan, and she has two other books as well that she might be talking about as well, Song of Someone and Christmas at the Sporus, and last but not least, Julie Ryan McGew with Twice a Daughter. Thank you all for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to have you here on Launchpad. Randy, let's start with you. Tell us about your book. Hi, so my book is called, there we go, there we go. It's it, The mirror effect always gets me. This is uh, Tune In Tomorrow, which is about a reality TV show run by mythical creatures, for mythical creatures, but starring humans. And I am an long, a longtime entertainment journalist. I've done a lot of stuff both behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. And I even worked at a soap opera magazine for a while. So I have all of this background and I, you know, Wanted to put some of that into the book. Uh, you know, the, there's a lot of backstage shenanigans and how the sausage gets made. And uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that any of the characters in this book are based on actual people I may have met. But, you know, you can make your own decisions. Um, our main character is a struggling actor who just can't seem to get a gig. And she is discovered while, uh, as, well, she's actually discovered while doing improv. Uh, as a singing mango. So if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen uh, improv and they say, all right, give us a prompt, a fruit or a, an action. So she's being a singing mango and the executive producer from the show, who is a fawn, F-A-U-N, not like a deer, fawn, uh, thinks she's just the greatest thing since sliced bread and has to have her on the show. And so later on in the book, when she has to summon up her courage because she runs into all sorts of you know, there's a dangerous diva, there's a dragon who's the uh, receptionist, there's uh, a mystery about what happened to her previous uh, successor, uh, her previous, um, her, sorry, she's the successor, but her previous um, previous woman on the show, um, when she has to summon up her courage to really figure this mystery out and avoid danger and falling furniture, as it turns out, um, she thinks, okay, be the mango, be the mango. <laughs> 
I can see us all with t-shirts now. Be the mango. <laughs> you know, I have pins. I can, I have stickers. I can, I can always get all readers these things. Um, I, I love it. So here we have from the funny to the fantastical. Now let's jump to Linda Smith Hogan with not the funny and the fantastical, but some pretty hard questions in our song, Memoir of Love and Race. So my book, unlike Randy's, is a true story, um, the story of my first love in college. And just a little backstory, I was raised in a rural city, small city in Pennsylvania, by parents who were educated and yet very prejudiced in their views about other people. And growing up during the era of the civil rights movement, the things I saw on television and you know in the news just showed me that I did not want to hold those beliefs myself. So when I went off to college, it was the time of affirmative action, which meant that a lot of disadvantaged kids would get to go to school who previously wouldn't have been able to. Uh, and I think that made for just a much richer and more diverse environment for those of us who were in school. And um, along with that, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to a African-American young man from her college, which was six hours away from mine, but she thought that we would just, you know, connect like nobody's business. And we certainly did. I mean, I was a little bit starstruck. He was the star basketball player of the school, tall, very handsome, but also smart and just a genuinely nice person. And, um, what was also equally exciting was that while I thought he was all that, he also thought I was all that. And maybe that was the first time that had really happened to me. So it was it was just mind blowing. But our schools being six hours apart, you know, we didn't have video chat, cell phones, email and all that stuff back in those days. And so we wrote letters and he just wrote the most beautiful poetic letters that I still have to this day. Um, and along with it, we shared music because the music of the time reflected what was going on in the times. And it was just this exciting crossover of rock and soul and Latin, like Sly and the Family Stone and Santana. And, you know, every new album was just something that we couldn't wait for. But we had challenges to our relationship. The distance, of course, was a problem. Um, my racist parents, I felt, should not know about the relationship because I was still dependent on them. Um, I had a previous boyfriend who was studying abroad, who was going to be coming home and assuming that we would be together. And then my best friend set her sights on my lover, JT was his name, and decided that she would try to break us apart. And these challenges proved to be too much for us. Our relationship ended. It was a heartbreaking tragedy. Fast forward 40 years, I've decided that I wanna write a book about our story. And I contacted him and asked him his feelings about it. And he was not very happy about it. He's a very private person, but we decided to meet up for the first time in decades. And um, all I'll say right now was that that was a very powerful meeting. Wow. 
So lots to be told there. We have fiction, we have memoir. Let's go to Katie because we want to talk about Meet Me in Milan, but she also, you talked about music, Linda, and certainly uh, Katie's other works uh, were influenced by music as well. But Katie, tell us about Meet Me in Milan. Well, Meet Me in Milan is my third book in the Sherlock Holmes and Irene Ludworth mystery series. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a physical copy to show you today, but what I do have are the first two books in the series, my debut novel, Song for Someone, and the second book, Christmas at the Sephoris, which is a novello. Um, basically, the third book um, takes place in 1905 in Milan. Um, the books are historical mystery and suspense. Um, obviously, the protagonists are Sherlock Holmes and Irene Adler, the woman. Um, and my series really starts seven years um, after Holmes and Adler's adventures in after Arthur Conan Doyle's book, A Scandal in Bohemia. Um, they meet at the Opera House, the Scala in Milan, um, seven years later. Um, and the books are a continuation of that different stories and mysteries that they get up to. Um, Meet Me in Milan basically um, is a mystery um, regarding Irene's best friend, um, who unfortunately um, is accused of the attempted murder of her husband, Luigi Amato. Um, Renata is Irene's best friend and Irene's doing everything that she possibly can to try and prove her friend's innocence. Um, unfortunately, there is a credible eyewitness who comes forward, which makes the task impossible um, until Sherlock Holmes arrives on the scene from London and he reluctantly agrees to help her with the investigation. Um, but in doing so, they open up a can of worms, which brings their own relationship into question. Um, so, Basically, I was always been a massive fan of Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie. I read the entire canon by the time I was 13. Um, I had to do quite a lot of research. Um, obviously, it's historical fiction, so a lot of history, music, opera. Um, the wonderful composers who actually appear in the book, Arturo Toscanini, Pasquinini. Um, a lot of classical, which was really interesting to research. A rich fabric, a, a rich fabric within the story yes. as well. Yes. We do have people visiting with us today. So if you have comments or questions, please do leave them in the chat. Um, uh, one of our users has said that letter writing is such a lost craft. I think that yes. uh, we would all agree with that. Oh, and that goes to uh, Linda's book, certainly. And Julie, last but not least, I bet there was a lot of letter writing in your life and a lot of, as Katie Sherrington said, opening a can of worms. Yes. Tell us about Twice a Daughter. Okay, well, here's here's the book cover. Um, like Linda's book, this is a memoir. It's a, a true story. And uh, a lot like uh, Katie's work, I was a detective. Um, my twin sister and I are adopted. And uh, at 48, I, had, I was sent for a breast biopsy. Uh, my twin sister's health was just fine. And my husband used that scenario to uh, suggest that I should get my medical history. 
for um, my four children. So we had to contact our, our parents and get our uh, adoption records from them. They had kept them in the safe deposit box. So that the cat was out of the bag, so to speak, that we were off on this journey. Um, so not only did I have some health issues going on, I also ran into problems with my adoptive mom over starting this search. Um, she was not happy uh, that I was on this road to find my birth parents. My dad, however, was just fine with it. He was very supportive. Um, and my twin sister had to agree to help me. And uh, like Katie's book, the detective novel, we thought we were going down the right road and it turned out we didn't have the right name for our birth mom. She had used an alias, uh, which was completely legal back in the 1950s and 60s in adoption history. Um, we ended up having to use a, a confidential intermediary service and a judge had to get involved and open our adoption records, which fortunately had my birth mom's real name. Uh, she didn't initially want contact with my sister and I, which uh, put everything on the back burner. And because my birth father's name wasn't on my, uh, my original birth record, we needed to talk to her before we could contact him. So about five years went through um, the process of finding both our birth parents. Um, and when we contacted our birth father, we found out we have two siblings that nobody knew about and they didn't know about us. Um, and just like a novel, even though it is a true story, at the end of the story, my relationship with my half brother, it turns out that I already knew his wife. Um, she and her family had lived in the summer cottage next door to my family. So what started off as a very conflict situation with my adoptive parents turned into a beautiful, happy ending. I'm still really close to my new siblings. Um, so that's the first book. The second book, Belonging Matters, launches, whoops, launches this fall in um, November. It's a collection of essays about adoption and family. And it is a result of uh, my blogs that I write every week and some published essays that I've had printed in periodicals. So. Um, well, I, well, thank you. It's, that book is called Belonging Matters, and it comes out in, say, November. Yeah, in, in November, November, which is National Adoption Awareness Month. So it's, it's well timed. That's great. I want to go back to Randy because for two reasons. One is that you and she, Julie, Randy and Julie, share a connection that they didn't know about before Launchpad. And I love making connections on Launchpad. But also, um, we've heard about several people who've had to do really hard things. And Randy, in your book, Tune In Tomorrow, you talk about how your main character really has to look at the dark underbelly of things and uh, make a commitment to get to the source, if you will. So let's go back to you. Sure. Um, well, what would you like me to discuss? Like there, there's Tune In Tomorrow, or we can discuss the adoption thing. What no, you... start, with, start with Tune In Tomorrow. But the, the thing that I loved was that yesterday you disclosed that you also were adopted. So I imagine you can resonate with Julie's story. Absolutely. I feel like I resonate with all the stories here in one way or the other, honestly. Um, there's like, I, I, I'm a journalist, so I've been doing entertainment journalism a long time. So I'm always like, I'm always ready to ask the next question of everybody else. 
um, it's harder when you get the questions yourself. But yeah, Star, who is the main actor in our book, um, she thinks she's just got like this dream job once she figures out what that it's actually, there actually are mythical creatures and they do exist. But then she discovers that maybe there's an all about Eve situation going on. The diva of the show doesn't actually want her there. Um, that the woman who was hired before her, which was 30 years ago, disappeared mysteriously. And she doesn't want that to happen. So there's a lot of the, you know, just backstage stuff that um, reflects a little bit, perhaps, of what I experienced as a journalist. Um, you know, uh, people who work on the show getting together with journalists, not me personally. But, you know, um, so it, 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 it's meant to be, a, it's a fun book. It's full of a lot of puns and jokes and silliness and, and slapstick. But there's also what I wanted to include was a fun discussion of uh, immortality because you are you have humans dealing with characters who are immortal and what that actually means. And if you are a human on this show and you get an award, your first prize is that your age freezes. So as long as you're on the show, you do not age. So that's a great incentive to stay on the show, but it also means that the world moves on around you. So uh, that actually gets a bit of discussion there too, and which was a lot of fun <clears> to write. So that's sort of the darker, challenging parts of the story. Well, lots of things to discuss. I imagine each of these books is great for book clubs, and I can see many levels of stories there. Uh, Linda, let's go back to you. Um, we talked about you know some challenging things in each of the books. When you first went back to your lover of all those years ago, how did you convince him to let the story be told, if you will? Well, the truth is that I, I really didn't. Um, it was a really powerful meeting. Uh, I got answers to questions that I had had for 40 years about why things had gone wrong for us the way they did. And some of it I knew, some of it was on my part, but some of it had to do with him as well. And, you know, all those years that I wondered those things and I finally got to find out and it was just such a, a wonderful connection. But when it came to the book, all he said in the beginning was that he was uncomfortable with it. And I had really just started it. So I did a lot of thinking about, you know, well, what am I gonna do now? I asked, I'd asked him to collaborate, didn't want to. I'd asked him if I could, you know, use his letters in my book. He didn't want to let me. Um, and, you know, I started looking into, well, what can I do? And I found out that I couldn't quote his letters directly. I would have to paraphrase anything that I used from them. Um, an interesting thing is that when someone writes to you, you own the physical letter, but they own the words. It's as if their words are copyrighted to them. So I, I had to do that. I know it was quite a learning experience for me too. Um, and I talked with a number of professionals in all different areas of writing and publishing just to get a sense of what is what are the ethics here? I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, don't do this or that and it's going to be legal. But what are the ethics? And I actually did investigate legalities as well. And I found out that, you know, I had to be careful not to invade his privacy. And so I used uh, pseudonyms and I changed locations and descriptions and things so that, you know, there wouldn't be a legal uh, issue. But also I think that contributed to reducing the ethical issues as well. Um, sure. So I felt that 
you know, writing this book was very important to me. It was the book of my heart, really. And I needed to do it. And so I did it, trying to keep it as, you know, within the legal and ethical boundaries that seemed appropriate. It's so, so much the story behind the book, isn't it, sometimes? Oh, that um, gosh, you, yes. You've taught, taught us a great deal. Let's go back now, to... I, I, go actually, ahead. if I could jump in, because you said Please, it was okay if we had oh, questions. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> So something that occurred to me when I was listening to both Julie and Linda's stories is um, the question of who gets to tell our stories. You know, Julie had a little bit of pushback from her adoptive parents and Linda from her from her ex-lover. Uh, and like you say, there's a whole ethical thing about who gets to tell the stories that we, we have as much investment in as they do. And um, I just love that Linda had an ethical had ethical discussions about it. And I'd love to hear more from, from both Julie and Linda, if we have time, about um, whether or not this has given you a new perspective on who gets to tell any given story. Like if somebody showed up tomorrow and wanted to tell a story about you yeah. and how that would make you feel. Uh, well, I, I can speak with permission. Um, certainly I had my twin mm -hmm. sister's permission to uh, write the story. She, uh, and we're identical twins, so she didn't even ask to see uh, a pre-copy um, she read the book after it came out, but I did have to get permission for the chapters that my uh, birth parents were in. Um, my because my birth father had passed away before the book came out. Here's another permission thing. Uh, I didn't need his permission, uh, but I did choose to change his name at the request of my half siblings. Um, and so once I got permission from my adoptive mom and my birth mom. Uh, that the chapters that I wrote concerning them were okay. We were good to go. Absolutely fascinating. Um, I, we have Mary Helen Sheriff, the author marketing coach, who has just joined us. And she was just uh, remarking on the real trust that uh, your sister had of you and um, how people entrust their stories to others. Katie, you didn't have to get any permissions because um, Ms. Adler and Mr. Uh, Holmes are not real. But what are some of the backstories that you had to create when you were creating Meet Me in Milan? Um, well, the, the, the main backstory really started off with the first book, Song for Someone, because um, obviously I had to find a way for them to meet seven years after their adventures in Scandal and Bohemia. So I had to get the timing right historically, make sure Holmes wasn't investigating a case at another time, um, and bring this, bring this relationship back to life. Um, Meet Me in Milan is obviously a continuation of the first two stories, and it's set 10 years later from the original story, which is um, 1895, we're back in 1905 Milan. Uh, and it's basically the relationship between Holmes and Adler and what goes on. Um, I don't know if, you, if anyone has read the first book, Song for Someone, but it's basically um, a diary entries from Charlotte Sapori, who is Irene Adler's daughter, and upon her mother's deathbed, she discovers that Sherlock Holmes is actually her father. Mm. Um, and then, obviously, the story evolves from there. So it's a little bit difficult talking about the third book if you don't really know about the first. Sure. But having mm. said that, it is a standalone story in its own right, even though they are part of a series. It wouldn't really make any difference. But I think from the, from the reader's point of view, it will be easier to read them as they come, you know, books one, two, and three. I, 
I always say that families are funny places. And I think yes. that yeah. we, we, we see that in, in evidence. Randy, I would like to ask you, because yours is the most fantastical, <laughs> how, how did you come up with a soap opera where the viewers are not humans? You know, I, I've written a lot of uh, fantasy and speculative fiction over the past couple of years. And the fact is that Tune in Tomorrow started out as a possible text-based game that would be online. And it was going to be much more straightforward, sort of the All About Eve aspect where, you know, young actor comes on a soap opera, runs into trouble, you know, has to, it was kind of a choose-your-own-adventure situation. Mm -hmm. That didn't work out because I just couldn't figure out how to code it. But then I had this story that was still mine. And I thought, you know, can I turn this into a novel? And it was all outlined and it was ready to go. And I'm just like, okay. And I knew my author, I meant my readers were really into fantasy and speculative fiction. And I'm a big fan of using, using uh, fantastical characters in contemporary and modern uh, situations because it's fun to see like, well, how would we put a twist on streaming? You know, the, the TV show is part of streaming, but because they're fantastical creatures, streaming doesn't mean Netflix. It means I can watch this in any moving body of water. So you okay. turn on the sinks <laughs> and you can watch the show in the sinks. You know, it's, it's about playing on that kind of thing. So for me, that was just, that made the book a whole lot of fun to write uh, in addition to being a story I really wanted. It's so interesting that both Katie and Randy have this creative bent that creates this world, this whole world building. Um, and I think the challenge for Linda and I was going back with our memories and recreating the world that we remembered. Um, and uh, as Linda shared with, with her old boyfriend, their recollection is always a little bit different than your recollection. And even certainly with my twin sister, um, she had some different memories than I did, and I did incorporate them in the story. You know, so and, and, and to, to that end, I was actually thinking about um, something Linda said, which was that, um, you know, going to ask permission from the ex, there's certainly a story in my life where I had, don't have that kind of closure. And I would love to get this person, you know, sit down for coffee or tea and be like, okay, I have questions about why you did these things or what was your other book you're talking about? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm envious that you at least got to have that conversation, even if he wasn't thrilled about you writing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, Grace mentioned the sort of dark underbelly of some of our stories. And I think could go back and recall and recreate. I mean, I had help. I had his letters to reference and I got Sounds like we're having it here. Okay, Linda, could you just repeat that? It sounded like we had a little bit of technical difficulty just for a moment. Let's go back. Okay, okay. You um, had his letters. I had his letters to help me, you know, remember and recreate timelines and, and events and things like that. I also happen to have a pretty good memory for the past. But what I hadn't really anticipated was how hard it was going to be to sort of relive all of that. It was lovely and hard. I mean, reliving the love affair was just so exciting and I would laugh and my heart would pound and, you know, I would remember how I felt. But when the tragic parts of the stories came along, I just sobbed and sobbed. Mm. Um, and yet I just kept writing because this was that story that I had to tell. That leads us. Go ahead, Katie, please. 
sorry, I'm just can yeah, I just ask Linda a quick question? Mm. Um, did, did he read your book, your ex-partner? You know, I don't know. Uh, I I I saw him again in 2019 when I had a finally a semi-completed draft of the book, and I um, took a copy and gave it to him, and he said that he would read it, but he later told me that he would not read it. And I don't know. Uh, you know, he was really one of a couple of people that I most wanted to read the book. Yeah, cool. Um, well, well, there's a there's a life lesson. We don't always get what we want, which no. which is a song from your period, Linda. <laughs> Rolling Stones. Yes, we have just a few minutes left, and we've we've talked about books that have. Um, changed individuals' lives and will change readers' lives. So one of my very favorite questions is, how has writing your book or books changed you? Katie, let's start with you. It certainly changed me. Um, to be honest with you, I, I had no conception of, of writing a book at all um, until a visit to the Sherlock Holmes Museum in 2019, just before lockdown. Um, and I remember having a conversation afterwards with my daughter, because um, I've always been a big fan of Conan Doyle, always fascinated by Irene Adler. Um, I was so disappointed when she failed to appear in any further episodes after a scandal in Bohemia. Um, and there has been prestiges and uh, adaptations written since, which sort of hinted at a relationship between the two of them. Um, but they never, for me, they never really explore the possibility of the depths of, the, of that relationship um so my daughter suggested i wrote my own adaptation and i said don't be ridiculous i can't write a book and then of course the fog came and i, I did some outlining thought about it for a while and then um in early 2020 i decided to give it a go um and two years later i finished i finished the final draft took me two years to write six to eight hours a day having never written before I had so much to learn still have so much to learn now oh, it does um, change us. It, it does change you yes definitely but uh, I'm so glad I did it um, Linda, the, the, same, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry yeah. Linda same question um well I think writing my book gave me some resolution about what happened to me in the past mm -hmm. And it also showed me that I needed to look at my own fault in the situation because back when it the breakup happened, you know, I tended to blame my lover and my best friend. They were the ones who did me wrong. And I wasn't taking responsibility for my role in things, having another boyfriend for one. Um, and so I think it, that was really quite a life lesson for me. But it also just reinforced something for me that I think has been really important. I started publishing a few things in my 20s, and then I set it aside as I focused on career and things like that. And, and I went back to creative writing as an older person. And I started getting some short pieces published, which was really exciting. But I wasn't sure that I could actually write a whole book. And so writing my book showed me that I could, and I did. And Wonderful. Brilliant. Julie, okay. how did it change you? Oh, my goodness. Well, the subtitle of the book is A Search for Identity, Family, and Belonging. And I found all of those things. I found out what my birth name was, what my ancestry was, my medical history, 
and I sure learned a whole lot about uh, my adoptive parents and uh, how far they would go to help me uh, with my search. And uh, I learned about the family that uh, I didn't know I had. I've also been able to connect with a lot of other adoptees about their search stories. And that has been tremendously rewarding is to um, share our adoption stories and what we all will share. Wonderful. Last but not least, Randy, how has writing, I know you've written many venues, but how has writing this book changed you to finish us up for today? You know, I've always wanted to get my books published. I, this is not my first book that I've written, but it's the first book I got published, first fiction book, anyway, I should say. Uh, there were actually two other books that my agent had shopped around and they did not get picked up. So, you know, the thing that I, first of all, it's given me a lot more incentive to continue writing because it's like, hey, this can happen. It just may take a while. And the second thing is that I do have stories people want to hear, and that's really encouraging. So the way that it's changed me is just to give me more confidence about continuing to, be able to do this, and you know, make as much of it as, as make as much of a career as it as I can. Fabulous! I want to thank each of you for being on the show. Randy Dawn with Tune In Tomorrow, Linda Smith Hogan with our song Memoir of Love and Race, Katie Sherrington with the soon to be out. Meet Me in Milan, Julie Ryan McGee. We talked a lot about Twice a Daughter, but all So Belonging Matters comes out very soon. Thank you for joining us as guests on Launchpad. Thank you for joining us as listeners. And I hope you've fallen in love with your next great read and certainly fallen in love with these great authors. Thanks for being with us here on Launchpad. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks, Grace. This episode is copyrighted by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you for visiting with us on Launchpad.